The scripture reading this morning is taken from Romans chapter 15, verses 15 and 16. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points, as reminding you, because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. It was around 1915 when John Henson first wrote a a poem that that turned into a hymn that has these words as its second verse. All along on the road to the soul's true abode, there's an eye watching you. Every step that you take, this great eye is awake. There's an all-seeing eye watching you. You may not know that hymn. It's not in our songbooks. But maybe you know some of Henson's other hymns, like Anywhere is Home or I'll Live in Glory. But the song, Watching You, well, I'm just going to go ahead and say it, is admittedly creepy. It kind of smacks of George Orwell's world of Big Brotherism. To think that you're always 24-7 under surveillance seems to be the prevailing mood of the song. You can't get away from with anything because God's eternal eye is always watching you. I'd like to submit, though, another way of thinking about God and even about this song. And that's to think in terms of God always being there for us and God's eye always watching out for us protectively and God always having our back. I want to think for a moment, if we may, about Luke chapter 15 and the great prodigal son story. In the story of the prodigal son there in that chapter, it's always interested me why the father allowed the son to leave home in the first place. Have you ever wondered that? When you soon realize that the father in the story represents God, you have to ask, is, is that really an accurate portrayal of God, how he, he is with his children? That is, you decide that you want to leave your father's house, to leave his presence and his, and his fellowship, and, and God, in effect, says to you, well, there's the door, as if it really doesn't matter to him, and he lets you leave. And then later, beset by fake friends and hardships that reduce you to eating pig slop in a foreign land, we have to wonder, is, is the father back home? Is he just completely and totally disconnected? And the answer to all of those questions has to be no. None of us can believe in a God like that, a God who's disinterested in us the moment we decide that we will we'll walk out the front door. I know if I were, if it were my son in that story, I'd have people checking on him and I'd be receiving daily reports about his welfare. I'd be grieving every day. And I'd be praying that, that the Lord would bring my son to himself, in the words of the text, before he made a mess of things. Or maybe even before I messed up and stepped in prematurely to abort God's providential plan for my son's life. And think about that. Maybe just that's exactly what the father did in that story. After all, how did he know that his son was reduced to eating pig slop? How did he know to look for his son's return? How did he know in what direction to scan the horizon as he looked for his son's return each day? And that really is the way God is. 
His eye, the Bible says, is on the sparrow. And if he knows when each sparrow falls, then, then we know that he's watching me and he, he has my back. In good days and in bad, it's good to know that God is watching out for us. And, and that gives us a lot of hope, especially in difficult times. The Lord isn't just in his holy temple. He isn't just sitting on his throne and, and observing everyone on earth and, and his, his watchful care and his eye never leaves us. More importantly to that, David spoke to that issue in Psalm 33, verses 18 and 19. And here's what he wrote. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and to keep them alive in famine. I think that last phrase is a wonderful segue into the text that I want us to consider this morning. Will you be turning to Ruth chapter 1? Ruth in the Old Testament chapter 1. Because there's a story that's found here in the Old Testament pages that beautifully illustrates the very point that David was making in Psalm 33. It's a story that you may not have thought of in this light before. It's the story, of course, of Ruth, and, and the book bears her name. Notice, if you will, as you open that book, that the book begins with these words. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, let me say you'd be hard-pressed to find a time that was more difficult in, in Israel's history. It was darker than the days of the judges. I also remind you that the book of Joshua ended with Israel pledging their undying fidelity to the, to the God of heaven, who was with a mighty hand had brought them out of, out of Egypt. And they did remain true for a while. The Bible says, at least until Joshua died and all the leaders that had known Joshua, they then eventually died off as well. And then it would seem that it was every man for himself, spiritually speaking. It was almost like it was a, a spiritual martial law in effect sort of thing. The Israelites turned away from God. And then God disciplined them with troublesome times and also with, with foreign invasions. And that they would turn back to God in, in penitence. They would express their sincere sorrow to him. They would pledge that they would never leave him again. And, and God would raise up a, a leader to deliver them. They would serve God faithfully again for a time, and then they would wander away again. And, and if you've read through the book of Judges lately, and even if you haven't, you'll notice that there seems to be that repetition of those cycles throughout the book of Judges. We presume that it was in the midst of, of one of those cycles that the famine that we read about in the opening pages of Ruth occurred. Elimelech was a resident of Bethlehem. He's important in the story, but primarily because of who he's married to. And in an effort, it seems, to escape what may have been the judgment of the Lord, Elimelech decides to take his family and to leave with his wife Naomi and their two sons and to go elsewhere. It may have been a decision that was made out of desperation, but it was a poor decision nevertheless, and we know that because of how the circumstances play out. The Bible says they went to the country of Moab. I think it's important to note that the Hebrew text refers to it as the fields of Moab, and that's even more telling. It was nothing more but des nothing but desolation and a lack of cultivation. It was rough and untamed country. Where I grew up, we would call that hard scrabble country. But they worked hard. The Bible says eventually Elimelech died, and the two boys married. And then both boys, now men, also died. I remind you, it was a rough, difficult life. And Naomi was left alone with her two widowed daughters-in-law. And there you have it. 
In the opening five verses of this book, lives have have spiraled out of control, and some of them have ended in catastrophe. And we have to ask the same question again, because does God know what's going on in Moab? And even more importantly than that, does he he really care? In verse 6 of chapter 1, Naomi makes a decision. It tells us that Naomi decided to go back home because she had heard while she was in the fields of Moab that God had visited his people back in Judah and he had given them food. And, And at that point, that was the most urgent need. He would have given her food too, but remember she wasn't living any longer with the people of God. She had made her home elsewhere, and I get the impression that just maybe that business about leaving Bethlehem had been Elimelech's idea, and it might have been one that she was not comfortable with to begin. It's one of those things that uh, makes you scratch your head and go, hmm, because have you ever wondered how Naomi heard from the fields of Moab that God had given his people food back at home. Now, this won't be the last time, by the way, that we scratch our head in this narrative, I will assure you. Well, at this point, the Bible says that Naomi's chief concern is for her daughters-in-law. And for them to accompany her to Bethlehem would put them in precisely the same condition as she was in, a widow in a foreign and and perhaps hostile territory. And so she urged her two daughters-in-law to return to the homes of their fathers, with the prayer that the Lord would show the girls the same kindness that those girls had showed her and her two sons. And so one daughter-in-law, Orpah, that's not Oprah, that's Orpah, returns home, and then she's dropped from the story at that point. But Ruth, of course, after which the book is named, will not leave her mother-in-law. And it's to her mother-in-law that she makes this now famous oath If you've been to a wedding recently, you've probably heard these words. Entreat me not. That just means do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. And watch this carefully. This is critically important. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. By the way, gospel preachers like to note that this commitment and this oath is from a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law, and certainly it is. That's accurate. But But I see something else going on here, something far more important than just trying to figure out who's talking to who. I see Ruth committing herself to the God of Israel and placing herself under God's ethical code and under his judgment. That's critically important. Naomi, like most of us, is a struggler. She prays to God, but sometimes she chafes under his hand. She can't always figure out why God is doing what he's doing, and especially in her own sphere of influence. So when she returns to Bethlehem, just as she had decided to do, now she's an old woman. She's threadbare from her hard life in the, at work in the fields of Moab. And when she gets back to Bethlehem, the people whisper, but perhaps not too softly, Is this Naomi? Life has been rough on her. And Naomi replies, probably not too softly either, don't call me Naomi. That word, that name, by the way, means pleasant. She insisted, now call me Mara, which means bitter. Because that describes exactly where she was at that point in her life. 
Because the Lord, she says, and I'm quoting now, has testified against me, has brought calamity upon me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Now remember, not only does she assess her life that way, but she is saying that, that the Jehovah God is the one responsible for her hard times and the condition that she is now in. I, I went away full, I came back empty. And when you think about it, the prodigal son could have said the exact same thing over in Luke chapter 15, except his emptiness was self-inflicted. So let me ask a question. Very quickly, at this point in the narrative, was, was Naomi really empty? Maybe we can forgive her for, for being a little blind in her grief, because we can be the same way in our own day, and especially considering what's been going on in our world in the last year. When times are tough, we, we've experienced an extended illness, we, we kind of develop a, a blind spot, don't we, about all of our other blessings. We tend to magnify the difficulties, the hard points in our lives, and we say, why has God allowed this to happen in my life? And we forget about all the wonderful things that God himself has brought about and has put in place in our lives. Things like a place to live and clothes to wear and food to eat and a car to drive, and you could just make that list almost infinitely long. We, we seem to develop a blind spot about those blessings. And the reality is Naomi did not come back to Bethlehem empty. Please remember that. I'm going to say it again. God did not bring Naomi back to Bethlehem empty. He had given her Ruth. May I stop and parenthetically add, so that we will remember, hopefully from this day forward, that oftentimes what we need most in life is not food on the table or possessions. It's people. Just one person can make a difference between despair and hope. And I hope that we appreciate that as we continue to walk through this narrative. So suddenly life begins to, to turn around for Naomi now that she's back home because the book of Ruth really is more about Naomi, by the way, which will become even more apparent near the end of the book. By the way, if you haven't read the book of Ruth recently, I would encourage you to do that this afternoon. It's only four chapters, takes about 15 to 20 minutes. Well, anyway, they return to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Well, that's a good time to come back to town, isn't it? The crops have come in. If you're hungry, that's, that's really good news. And our storyteller introduces us ever so briefly to a character named Boaz. Now, Boaz is an influential man, and he also happens to be a relative of Elimelech, and of course, that's Naomi's late husband. And that, too, is going to be important in just a, in just a moment. But Naomi has, has some land, although it is not properly hers, but her son's. But that land hasn't been cultivated. So it's not going to do any good in terms of their being hungry now in order to feed them. And so Ruth takes advantage of a law that allows the poor and the immigrants to glean around the edges and the corners of fields that have been cultivated. And the Bible says Naomi really goes to work. She's a hard worker and she begins to, to glean in those fields. And it just so happens that the field that she selects to glean from belongs to this guy we mentioned a moment ago named Boaz. Having set a track record of, of diligent toil for herself, everybody knows that Naomi's a hard worker. It also just hap so happens by the way, let me stop also and add, that's what the word behold in this narrative means. Whenever you see it, and it's found frequently in these four chapters, the word behold really could be translated like this. It just so happened. 
And, and, and you, when you see those words, please think in terms of the framework of God's providential hand. Is there an all-seeing eye watching you? You better, better believe there is. But it's not one who's simply putting you under surveillance so that he can smack you in the back of the hand when you do something wrong. It's a God who's looking out for your best interest, looking at you with compassion, and wanting always what is best for you. And that was true with Naomi in spades. We we have to appreciate how very much God is concerned, not only about us, but about her. So, especially chapter 2, verse 4, you see that word, behold that the owner of the field returns home from town. It just so happened that Boaz was coming back at that point. Boaz's character is that of a good man who prays that the Lord will bless his workers, and the workers also pray for his welfare in return. And so he has that kind of relationship even with the people who are employed by him. And it just so happens that Boaz notices Ruth. He inquires about her. And what follows is nothing short of amazing. He treats her as he would a daughter. He invites her to eat at his table. And I guarantee you, he doesn't do that for all of his employees, but he sees after her welfare. He kind of brings her under his protection and provides her with uncommon kindness and generosity. And we have to ask, why would Boaz do such a thing? Well, part of it, in fact, I think a large part of it is because she, as a foreigner, has taken shelter under the wings of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 12 notes that very clearly. In other words, God is the one who is directing the scenes of this drama. And later that night, as Ruth relates to her mother-in-law the events of the day, she reveals the identity of her benefactor, and lo and behold, it's none other than Boaz. Now, now Naomi sees at this point how that God, the divine weaver, has woven his will into the tapestry of her life. She now sees with eyes of faith that the God whom she had earlier claimed has brought me back empty, has actually provided a redeemer for her. If she ever thought that God had forsaken her, she now sees that she was mistaken. And to her credit, she says so. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. She says, he has not forsaken the living or the dead. However much Naomi and Ruth have been cared for by the Lord thus far, their futures still look a little shaky. What will happen to them when the harvest is over and their food supplies is gone? Remember, they've been gleaning from the fields of others that they have cultivated. There are two provisions in the law that you need to know about at this point. The first is that if a man became poor, he could sell his land to the nearest relative who was able to afford to buy it. And then he can buy it back when he's able. Or when the the year of Jubilee rolls around, when all debts are canceled. And the second provision of the law states that if a man died, this is especially relevant to this situation, if a man died leaving a widow but no children, then the man's nearest relative should marry the widow, raise up children to the dead man by proxy. And, And these sons would inherit the property of the deceased as his children. Now, now, don't worry if you don't have all of that, you know, squared away in your brain. But, but think about that for just a moment, those two provisions. And Naomi, in those provisions, saw a chance to use those two subclauses in the law to secure Ruth's and her own future. And so she advised Ruth with these words. I'm reading from the text. It is not, is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were, See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. 
Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. And then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now may I say at this juncture, this plan has every reason to fail. Boaz might take offense that Ruth has offered herself to him, and he would think ill of her. That would be understandable. Ruth might be taken advantage of by Boaz and just cast aside. Heaven knows that that was not unheard of in the days of the judges. Ruth could have been refused by Boaz and just dismissed and sent away in disgrace. Boaz might have been a heavy sleeper and just didn't even wake up until in the morning. And Ruth could have seen, been seen on the threshing floor and lost her reputation. And she and Naomi would have been in deep trouble at that point. May I stop and say, don't forget the watchful eye of the Lord. Boaz, at the end of a long day and a satisfying meal, lies down, and I'm reading from the Bible here, at the end of a heap of grain. May I also preface that by saying, it so happened that he lies down at the end of a heap of grain. That means he's away from everybody else. He is away from prying eyes. So far, so good. I, I wonder, why, why does the Bible supply that kind of detail? Did he do it on purpose, or is it just one of those things that happens to happen? Well, the Bible text says that then Ruth comes in and does exactly what Naomi has told her to do. And cold feet under the covers apparently are not enough to awaken Boaz. And so something awakens him, and it just so happens, note the behold word again in verse 8, that there's a woman at his feet. Ruth does not offer herself to Boaz. She is above that, again, to her credit. What she does do is ask him to marry her and accept in, in accordance with the law of the Lord. And Boaz has previously complimented her that she has taken shelter beneath the protective wings of Jehovah God, and, and she now asks that, that he play that, that role of those wings to be, to be her protector and her caregiver. That's kind of the deal that she lays out on the ground in front of Boaz at that point. Now, just a side note here, and I think it's an important side note, and, and I pray that you'll think about this. You might well be the blessing that God intends to give to someone within the fabric of his providential plan. You might be that Boaz to somebody who desperately needs you. And I can't help but think in terms of our, of our theme for this year, win one in 21. What better way could you be a Boaz, a protector, a comforter, a, a, a person who is an, an inspiration by being responsible for leading that person to the Lord during the course of this calendar year. I, I hope that you thought of life in that way. If not, it's time that you began to do that. You just might be the Boaz that someone desperately needs. Well, back to the story. Boaz agrees to her proposal. But he too has to follow the letter of the law and he informs her that there's a relative she needs to know that there's a relative closer to Ruth than he is, and that relative must be given the chance of marrying her first. Now, again, if you try to diagram all of that, good luck with that. 
But that's still a part of the law. And so he's going to go by and adhere to the law. And what he's doing is he's, he's really protecting her reputation as well as her, her physical well-being. And having said that, he, he promises to settle the matter the very next day. So Boaz went out the next morning to the city where all business of any importance was transacted. He had just sat down when, behold, there's that word again, it just so happened that the nearer kinsman redeemer happened to walk by. What a wonderful coincidental timing. And coincidental has to be put in quotation marks. Or the more obvious option is God's eternal hand was in all of this. Boaz makes his pitch. He tells him that Naomi has returned from Moab and that she's in desperate straits. She has a field to sell and the kinsman redeemer has the right of first refusal. The fellow whose name is purposely not given in the biblical text sees a wonderful opportunity for himself there, a great financial opportunity, a field that's owned by a widow and one who is in a hard place right now in dire straits as well. What a deal. And so the Bible says he decides to take it. And that's when Boaz provides what Paul Harvey would call the rest of the story. The man will, of course, have to marry Ruth and have children by her just as the law stipulates. If you're going to obey and adhere to one half of the law, you've got to obey the other half as well. So the land for which he had paid good money will not really be his at all. It will belong to the children of Ruth. And to use his own assets would diminish the estate And though it isn't mentioned, his own wife likely isn't going to be happy about any of this either. Could you imagine him coming home and she said, honey, how was your day? And he said, well, pretty good. I bought some land and I got married. So this guy turns it down. And that clears the way for Ruth and Boaz to get married. And the Bible says they soon have a child. Now, the last few verses... Turn the story on its ear. We imagine Boaz as the redeemer and Ruth as the redeemed. But the story really isn't about that at all. Notice these verses, chapter 4, 14 through 17, as we end this lesson. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life And a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. Well, actually, it was to Ruth, verse 13, and and they named him Obed. Stay with me now. And they named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. I hope you saw what just happened here. The Redeemer is the child, and the redeemed is Naomi, the one who thought back when that the Lord had left her empty. And the one who pulled it all back together for her was none other than God himself. And while Naomi had thought that the Lord had brought calamity upon her, he was caring for her all the while. And he was using her calamity to bring Israel's greatest king into the world. Please appreciate that. 
And, and, and that's not all. In, in using a Gentile woman, Ruth, one of three women in Jesus' genealogy, all of them Gentiles, he would provide hope for all Gentiles, including you and me. And that's my message to you today. The God of all hope has his eyes on you. You may feel alone and empty, but you are not. You may look bereft of resources, but you are not. The future may seem unsure right now, but it is not. Not to him whose all-seeing eye is forever watching you in a caring and compassionate way which gives real meaning to Paul's benediction that was read a moment ago as our text, specifically verse 13 of Romans 15. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. May I say that again? That is so, so full. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I hope you caught that word, overflow. You don't just have hope in our Redeemer. Your hope can overflow. Maybe in the words of another Old Testament account, when Mordecai spoke to Esther, let me suggest to you this morning, you may be in this building for such a time as this. This may be the time when God's providential plan in the tapestry of your life, God sees you walking down the aisle when we sing the song of invitation and committing your life to the Lord. Who knows? Behold, it may well be that you're here this morning to hear that song sung, to look around and see these Christians who are so desirous of your obedience, to recognize that there is an all-seeing eye watching you who wants nothing more, than to see you, you surrender your life to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, repentance, and in baptism. And to do that now while we stand and while we sing. Uh-huh.